In fact, I am on call at this moment, and my dear wife sitting back there has the phone. So if she gets up and runs, it's not because she hates my sermon. It's because the phone rang, right? So, anyways. I have, I've chosen this posture this morning because somehow I want to say, and maybe this is all in my head, but somehow I want to say that when we come to the topic that we want to look at this morning, there isn't, there isn't a hierarchy. And, and I'm not saying that when Steve or other people get up here that somehow they're, they're lording it over you. I'm just more convinced that in this context, we really need to be on the horizontal. In every, in every institution, um, there's, a, there's a vertical. You've got your flow charts and all that stuff that happens, and that helps to keep order going. But when we get down to something called community, it goes flat. And I wish that I could sit down there, um, but th- that might be a little awkward. Because this is not about me sitting up here guilting you or trying to con you into something that I am getting paid 10 hours a week to do. I don't want to do that. In fact, I, I, I didn't know this was the topic that was going to be handed to me. Steve did, and thank you for giving me this topic because it really is a passion in my heart. But um, this is for us. This is a serious thought this morning because it has so much potential for the life of the church. And I want to say also for your life. But I want us to be reminded that when we think about life, we don't think at the individual level first, though that's what we have been trained to do. We think at the corporate level. We think of others, last part of the verse. And so what we want to share this morning really is uh, a a challenging topic. I'm going to stick really, really closely to my manuscript, uh, so bear with me on that. But um, here's where we go. Let's, Let's start this. Let me tell you the story of everybody, no exceptions. Now, now differing degrees in this story as I unfold it, but no exceptions. And it goes like this. Sometime when you were a little girl or a little boy, you stumbled across something that wasn't God-honoring but was either beneficial for you or pleasurable. It, it might have been stealing or an attraction to the pictures out of the Sears catalog. Or maybe you found out lying could cover a multitude of sins. Or maybe you found certain behaviors got you what you wanted and you groomed them to perfection so that by the time you were six years old, you could figure out how to get what you wanted. Or you found out that it was really fun when you could buy and get stuff. And soon the success of your birthday party or Christmas was defined by how much you got. Or how about those of you who may have been raised at some level in a dysfunctional home? Ah, That defines probably most of us at some level, but but at some level there was kind of a a level of dysfunction that that was disturbing to you. And you you developed in that context an ability to sit and brew over your lot in life, comparing yourself to those who you believe had it better off than you did. Things we collect in those early years of life. The problem or the challenge is you're now a teenager or you're an adult 
And the stealing has only gotten bigger. The Sears catalog is transferred into hours on porn sites. Lying has become such a habit you organize certain parts of your behavior around your ability to lie. Lies, in fact, open up for us uh, multiple doors, um, anything that we think we can get away with. Dangerous one. That's why it's called Satan's called the father of lies. But or to behavioral patterns, you discover the use of anger to shut people out, or the need to control as a means of self-protection, pouting, moodiness, in an attempt to get sympathetic attention or to eventually get what you want. And those shopping sprees carry a belief that stuff will still make you happy, whether it's clothing whether it's upgrades in the electronic field, whether it's a new car, bigger house. Often something to add to the collection of things I really don't need, but I hope will bring me happiness. Anyways, it's costing you a small fortune. And as to your dysfunctional beginnings, you have learned to become the victim. Everything is someone else's fault, and we can never or you can never get to the point of owning up to your own responsibilities. And then we try to attach the ending found in every fairy tale to our lives. I want to live happily ever after. But there's something nagging deep inside that keeps that happy ever after ending from ever feeling really authentic, true, real to me. So how's everyone feeling? <laughs> you heard about the guy who kept banging his head against the wall because it felt good when he stopped? <laughs> I'm going to do that this morning, so bear with me. Because in this context, there's a topic we have difficulty discussing. And it's the roots of some of the stuff that I just described for us. It lives with us. It roams around in us. And we struggle with it. See, what started back then has now become behaviors that can only be defined as sinful. And we know it. And as you desire or make attempts to get closer to God, you become even more aware of the struggle that you have, and you keep banging against the wall. More aware of it, but, and it's a huge but here, it's, it's an everybody story, but some of those behaviors you find you're unable to shake, and you're left with guilt, and you're left with shame, and you're left with fear, frustration, this huge sense of failure. And a great big, how do I get out of this mess? Well, this is when we pull out the uh, proverbial protective masks out of our back pockets in an attempt to save our public shame or fear or frustration, but it never quite addresses our guilt well because we still know who we are behind the mask. It is a mask. For when we look around the room, as we look at each other, we see people who love Jesus, probably include you, who want a deeper life with him. I, I'm thinking that that's probably why we've shown up here this morning. Who know that reading their Bibles and praying regularly is a good thing and have amazing marriages and children who are perfect. That's what we always think about the person sitting beside us, right? For the most part, we see very nice people. Well, I mean, after all, we are Christians. No, we are Christians. What I described earlier is not an attempt to try to take away your faith. I haven't taken away your faith. I've simply opened up in a compartment of that journey within your faith that you're struggling with somewhere. 
See, we're all Christians, but the problem is we're all too often stuck Christians, stuck with a compartment in our lives that we would feel really uncomfortable wanting um, others to, uh, to know about it. Or there's another case scenario that goes here with this area, this, perhaps this struggle. It might be an area where you have publicly admitted to this particular compartment, this sin that you're struggling with on many occasions, but because you have not won it, you acknowledge that you, that, that well, that's just me. I, that, that's our, our conclusion. I guess that's just who I am. Like it or leave it, that's who I am. Or perhaps as you try to address this particular challenge, you've also come to the place where not just excusing it as normal rather than sinful, but you come to believe that there is nothing I can do about it. And you say to me, well, that's fine, Pastor Dave, but you don't know this is harder than it looks. This is harder than you think. And there you sit with this sort of area of your life that you feel so stuck into, and it does all kinds of things to us. Some people walk away from Jesus on this one. Some people just sit and, and kind of hunker down and, 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 and feel this kind of defeated attempt to go through life. And some of you have fallen into that particular sin so deeply that eventually perhaps there are people here who have been caught within that sin and, well, you just kind of know about the embarrassment and the shame and all of that. This is not to say you haven't tried. You, you, you may have begged God for deliverance on more occasions than you can count. You may have heightened your devotional life, added an extra few minutes or an hour or who knows how much to, to that part of your world. Maybe you've come for extra prayer. You've responded to the altar calls. And heaven only knows how many times you've promised God you will change. And that prayer, dear Jesus, I will never do it again, is now starting to cause a level of cynicism within you because you have. Now here's the big question. Have I left anybody out? Have I left anybody out? You see, I, I'm thinking probably not. Though I seriously suspect that with a group this size, we are all at different stages on this success growth continuum. But just in case someone here thinks that they are alone in this battle, which we often think we are, or some here are like the Pharisees who was just grateful he wasn't like that poor sinner who was standing beside him, then I want you to remember where we began. This is critical. Paul did it very, very succinctly for us. He kind of wrote it out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I remind you, and he put it down in something we call Romans 3.23, and it says what? For all, say it with me, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, we're not going to get to the bottom of this until we learn to acknowledge our beginnings. We can't pretend. We're going to work on that a bit. Or John took it a little step higher for us. And, and he wrote this in 1 John 1 and 8. And, and I want you to understand that, that Paul was writing to the church, but probably Romans 3.23 was talking about a pre-Christian experience. But when John tackles the subject in John chapter 1, verse 8, he is speaking directly to the church. And he says this, 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's a humbling beginning. It's what makes sense to the last part of the verse we just memorized when it said, let's not think more highly, or, 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 oh, I've forgotten it now. (laughs) Give me the last part of that verse. What was the pinky? Well, give it to me again. Honor another, one another above yourself. You see, when we don't get to that humble beginning, it's all too easy because, well, you know, my sin is just gluttony. And I can talk about that, and we'll discuss the diets that I've been on or not. But what if your sin is in one of the biggies? What if it's in the one that, ooh, if somebody found out, what would they think? No, friends, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we, the church, claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's why we're later informed in the scriptures that one of our most successful activities in all of life is this. Confess your sins one to another. We never quite get to that part. Because we're not quite sure whether that's a safe thing to do. Never quite sure. Is the trust levels big enough for me to enter into that space and dare to say to you, I am blank? Can I just tell you right now that success initially begins when we acknowledge that we are all in this together? So as not to think more highly of ourselves, but humbly and with sober judgment. See through the eyes of Jesus who we really are. You see, that's not a bad place to be. In fact, confession is probably one of the most freeing experiences that we can ever hold on to. But if I were sitting in the pew right now, I'd be saying to myself, being a rather pragmatic type, okay, preacher guy, what's the solution? What should we, what should I do? It's a very good question, Dave. Thank you for asking that. I have come to believe that the answer isn't what should I do? Because you can list, depending on your age and the length of your struggle, you can list all the things you have done. They're there. As a matter of fact, the list probably increases levels of guilt and frustration and anger and cynicism and all those sorts of things that want to rob you of this freedom in Christ that we read about in the scriptures. No, it's not what should we do. But where could such a personal spiritual victory happen? It's a spot, it's a place, it's an environment, it's an ecosystem that we're actually needing in order to address this particular challenge. Let let me work with this. I want to change the context. I mean, we've all done many of the right things. I want to take us to Hebrews chapter 10.25. I think it's a verse that often gets misunderstood. It's a verse that the ministers love to use to convince everybody they should be to church on Sunday morning. But I'd like to challenge that concept in one, in one sense. It goes like this. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. 
Your possible reaction to that is, well, this is good. Here I am. I'm in church. I'm pleasing the, 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 the pastor. Steve will be glad that I'm here. The rest of the ministers will be glad that I'm here. No, I have not forsaken the gathering of myself together. And this is good. This is a good place to be on Sunday morning at 1030. I am not taking away from that. I, I would be... Uh, I would know that I'd be missing a huge chunk of my growth in Jesus if I wasn't showing up here on Sunday morning. Please, don't hear me saying this is an excuse to not have to get out of bed on Sunday morning. I just want to take it a step farther. I want to take it perhaps more into the context of what the writer was referencing here because the rest of the language helps us to understand what this means. See, the, the context needs to be stretched a bit because the picture of this early church looks like this. It's, it's described in, in, in significant part in Acts chapter 2, and then, and then as you glean through the epistles and the rest of the readings, it kind of puts the pieces together, kind of like a puzzle. But in, in Acts chapter 2, this, this is the picture that we're being given. It says, then they gathered in the temple courts. They went to church. And actually, back there, the excitement was so high that they didn't just wait for Saturday to roll around, the Sabbath for the Jewish people and, and for that very early church. They didn't just show up there. They were showing up there throughout the week. It was a good place to be. And, and there stand Peter and John and, and who else, probably others, standing there preaching and teaching. And, and then as the church kind of expanded, they'd go off to the synagogues, and, 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 and there they would get this teaching and preaching, and it was important. It, it was the initial advancement of the kingdom. Important. But then where did they go? I need you to hear this. You, you know, I'm kind of worried about going into this next phrase because I, I wonder if you'll just think, oh, there he goes. He's trying to preach his cause. Oh, I hope you don't hear that. Because this is the point of transformation. I'm hoping I can show you that as we go through this. But I, I don't want you to, to stop at this point, shut me off somewhere because of it. But after they enjoyed the teaching in the temple, they went from house to house. And that reference, house to house, didn't mean sort of like um, uh, Halloween, knocking on doors, how are you doing, moving to the next door, how are you doing? No, they would, they would leave the large context, and this group would go to this house, and this group would go to this house, and this group would go to this house, because there's a dynamic that can take place in that context that could not take place standing in the temple courts or sitting in a congregation of 400 people. Can't. Our Christian history gives evidence to this importance. If I could take you back to the Moravians, they saw fascinating things taking place in a very ungodly culture, and it happened in little house settings, cell groups. If I took you back to the Wesleyan revivals, you'd find that in the wisdom of John Wesley, he said it's not enough for you to show up at the churches, and he formed these house societies with very stringent rules, let me tell you. Or if we walked into the Welsh Revival, another time that would mimic sort of the environment of our day. It was an evil time in Wales when the Spirit of God moved in. And he took those people and he moved them into house societies. And things began to happen, change the society around them, in fact. Or I could take you to South Korea, if I could, that was completely, listen to this, completely non-Christian five or six decades ago. 
If the church existed in South Korea, it was minuscule. And within that period of time, Christians began to gather and meet in these house cells, they call them, as well as went to churches. In fact, South Korea in that six-decade period grew the largest churches in the world. But the strength was when they would show up in the middle of the week at people's homes. And they changed the face of South Korea. I'm not just talking about cute little let's get together things. I'm talking about the very point of transformation in the church's life and in our own. Let's look at the last half of Hebrews 10.25. It says, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, there's an activity that's taking place here that is essential for transformation. Personal, intimate, relational attention given to one another. Personal, intimate, relational attention given to one another. And as we watch our world become increasingly evil, as it was in the day that Hebrews 10.25 was written, this becomes all the more critical. We as the body of Christ face more temptations in this period of time than they did in my dad's time. I don't know about before then, but I know my dad's time. He had his temptations. He was smart enough to tell me about some of them. But friends, if we're going to survive the onslaught of the enemy that we cannot help any longer ignore taking place around us, we need something greater, or, or not greater, sorry, We need something along with this context that we're sitting in right now. In fact, the command of Jesus requires a very specific ecosystem or or environment. It was Jesus last night on earth before his crucifixion. He'd washed their feet and then he he turned to them and and, and he looked them eye to eye, straight at them. And he gave them what he said, a new commandment. Now we have to listen carefully to this because we know that the faith of the church or or the faith of the Jewish nation, the the God-fearers within the Jewish nation, they had obediently followed 10 good ones and 100 others or so that had been added. But commandments were very, very important. So when Jesus says, okay, now listen, I want to add to that. I want to give you a new commandment. We need to listen to this because this new commandment right now, friends, is going to be critical to the existence or the giving birth of the new church that was to take place. It's a pretty simple new commandment. He says this, I want you to love each other in the same way that I loved you. Well, on the surface, that sounds pretty basic. Okay, I, I, I want to love. Okay, that's, that's, that's good. But the critical part is I want to love you the same, I want you to love each other in the same way that I have loved you. And how was that? It was sacrificial, it was authentically laying down your life for one another. But it requires an environment. And so it's interesting here because Jesus went all across the country preaching the truth about the kingdom of God and he went on hillsides and he stood by the sea and, and, and he'd, he'd show up at somebody's house for supper and all of a sudden the whole neighborhood is surrounded with people and, and he was there teaching them in this great crowd. But on one critical night he went off to the mountainside all by himself and he prayed and he said, God, I need a life group. I need a group of people who are going to make a difference, not just listen to me preach. I need to find these people who will, sur- I can surround, or who will surround me in, in order to do the kinds of work that is going to need to be done if this thing's ever going to get off the ground. And he called the 12 men together. 
And those men did such a significant job that in later testimony by the enemy said, these guys are turning the world upside down. The people loved to listen to the stories. They came and asked to hear them. They liked the miracles as well. But the disciples got to figure out how to live life because Jesus said, I want a group of men who will be, and here's the, here's the quote, with me, with me, with me. The multitudes heard the truth. The disciples got the story of life. One that could tra <clears throat> transform their lives and their relationships. Friends, we can hear, we can make choices, we can be inspired while we sit here under some of the best preaching, but the transforming ingredient necessary for our transformation comes in a context of authenticity which begats trust. We nod our heads in approval in this larger context as we hear the truth of God's word, but the encouragement and strength required for life changes comes when I look across the living room and I can dare to ask, would you pray for me because I'm losing in a significant life struggle. Transformative. It changes. So how do we experience authentic community? Oh my gosh. We need to break the cycle. We need to break the cycle of I've sinned, I feel guilt, remorse, I seek God's forgiveness, I am relieved at God's mercy to forgive, and then live a period of time soaking in his grace, and then here I go again, I'm back at square one. We need to break the cycle. And you may want to go away, but now it's 5, 10, wanted to go away, but now it's 5, 10, 40, 60, 80 years, and you're still caught in the struggle. I'm here to say that the model we are given that provides a setting for such healing to take place is in our language called life group. No, wait, it's not life group, I'm sorry. It's rather a life group that is composed of an authentic community. Huge difference. Don't confuse the two. I've been in small groups that didn't exhibit authentic community. I've read, led small groups that didn't exhibit authentic community. Uh, let, let me try to def define that. But for those of you who have participated in the past in a life group hoping for something that you didn't get, I wonder if that group would sound as something like this. Someone opens the Bible, reads a little bit, you know. Or, or maybe you watch a little part of a DVD. We're doing that. It's good. And someone says, well, what did you get for question four or question seven? Answers given and the response is, well, that, that's nice, that's nice. Right, moving along, got to get to the end of the chapter. And then someone asks something a little deeper, something a little more personal only to have someone toss in a pat-Christianized response, and then there's this awkward silence, and then, okay, well, thanks for sharing, and then we move on. Prayer requests are made for a cold that is hung on for two days, another for strength because his mother-in-law is visiting, and another for God to change the boss's attitude. Done. Not bad, but in an hour. And this is all enjoyed with dessert and coffee in hand. Well, the ladies talk about the great deals they just purchased, and the men straighten out the riders and we go home. <laughs> now, admittedly, this is all said with tongue-in-cheek, although maybe closer to the truth than we care to divulge. Oh, there's so much more I could say, and my time has run out. I'm sitting in a life group right now, a life group that is made up of people who didn't, with the exception of a couple, perhaps, who really didn't know each other much before we got into this life group. But I discovered something fascinating about this particular group. It was a group of people who didn't want just what I described. And there was one couple in that group who dared to get a little vulnerable. 
And they shared something that, well, it took off the mask. And they talked a bit. And for the first time, my heart said, I think I'm in the right place. I think I'm in a place where people are going to get real because the only way we can have authentic community is when the real you shows up. The real you with your real needs delivering yourself to the real others because that's what it's about. It is no longer about me. It is all about others. The scriptures do not in any way whatsoever say that I am number one in this life. I am not number one in this life. My friends, you are number one in this life. And mathematically, that just makes sense. Because if I give all my attention to myself, let me tell you right now, that's one guy trying to make it work. But when I discover the joy of giving myself sacrificially in a deep commitment to other people, then I get the love of all them coming back at me. Mathematically, it makes sense. God has a good logic in all of this. He knows how life works. And he calls us to it. In the environment of authentic community, friends, that's where true authentic Christianity can take root. You can take a good seed, the word of God, you can plant it in, a, in, in good soil, a good, honest, sincere heart. But if it's not planted in the right environment, it won't grow. Farmers know this. Take quality seed, plant it in well-fertilized uh, 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 soil. But if the rain doesn't come at the right time and the sun doesn't shine, it doesn't work. Friends, there's an environment that you need to take the good seed in your good heart and plant it. And I'm telling you with great confidence and conviction that you should seriously consider something smaller than what we're doing right now. That you need to, along with this good setting, let us know, I'd like to be involved in a place that just gets real. Doesn't that sound good? Isn't there something that's scary? Yeah, yeah, risk is scary. And I'm not talking about showing up and then spilling your guts on night one. You're not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to be very discerning. I need trust. I, I, I have to have some level of safety built into this factor. But if I'm in the place and I have discerned the trust and the safety has been built in, then I might dare share the thing that is keeping me from that full relationship with Jesus. Amen. Amen. Remember Peter, or, or Peter, Steve, in the first introductory service said there was a man who found a pearl at great price and he sold everything to get it. Remember? I'm saying there's a great pearl embedded in the life of this church. It's here. I'm saying it's worth the risk, the commitment, and the need for authenticity to dare sell everything and move in. That's my prayer for us. Thank you.